Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is indeed the word of God for the people of God. Well, as I said, we are continuing this morning in Luke's gospel, and we're really, for the last several weeks, we've been studying the final week of Christ's earthly ministry as recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. For the last few weeks, the events that we looked at, the triumphal entry and Christ's lamentation over Jerusalem, those events all took place on the day that we today call Palm Sunday. Now the event we're looking at this morning happens on the very next day. Mark 11 gives us the detailed timeline on this. Mark says that on the day of the triumphal entry, Jesus entered into Jerusalem that day and went to the temple, but Mark says it was already late. So he left, went back to the city of Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, spent the night there, and then the next day, the following day, he went immediately back into Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple. And once entering into the temple, he did something very remarkable, which we see in our text today. Luke tells us he began to drive out those who sold. Now Luke is very minimal in the details to the event we are looking at this morning. But Matthew tells us that this involved overturning tables, the tables of money changers, and those who sold pigeons. Mark tells us in his gospel that he would not even allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, meaning that as he was driving out these vendors and money changers, he would not even allow them to re-enter to get their merchandise. And so I need us, beloved, to understand the scene. I need us to understand what is happening with, here within the context of the narrative of Christ's earthly ministry this morning. The day before this, as we said, he had ridden into Jerusalem as the long-promised Messiah, the, the, the long-promised Messianic King. And in the triumphal entry, his identity as the Messiah, for the first time in his earthly ministry, was being publicly, loudly proclaimed by all the crowds. They were crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And we heard the last two weeks how this event of the triumphal entry was very tragic. It was tragic because the crowds, although they were bowing down and supposedly worshiping Jesus, they were still clinging to misconceptions about the mission and the work of the Messiah. The reason the crowds were so excited at the triumphal entry is because they were expecting Jesus as the Messiah to enter into Jerusalem and conquer the city expel the Romans, liberate Israel, restore the glory of the kingdom. They expected Jesus to save them. And certainly Jesus was entering into Jerusalem to save them. But it was not the salvation they wanted. Jesus was entering into the city so as to be betrayed. 
handed over to the authorities, beaten, mocked, crucified, and that is how he would save his people. He would save them from their greatest enemies of sin and death and the devil. That was not the salvation that the crowds wanted. They wanted salvation from their political adversaries, from their national oppressors. And as we heard over the last two weeks, because Jesus would not give them that sort of salvation, the crowd who worshipped him as he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday would, in just a few days, be the mob who would cry out for his crucifixion. But beloved, here's what I want us to understand today. On this day, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and went straight for the temple, he did, in a sense, perform a great act of military conquest. He attacked and he conquered. But what he conquered was not what the Israelites were expecting. Jesus the Messiah attacked and conquered the temple. It's interesting. He didn't concern himself with the Roman Empire. He didn't concern himself with political oppressors. He went to the temple and he attacked the very seat of the religious life of Israel. And I have to ask, brothers and sisters, what does that tell you about the priorities of Jesus Christ? Maybe it should tell us that Jesus Christ is far more concerned with the religious life of his people than he is with the political lives of pagans. Now we should ask this question, why exactly did Jesus attack the temple? And in response to that question, I want to propose to you three things Three things that Jesus saw in the temple which were an offense to him. So offensive, in fact, that Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, becomes physically violent. Three things this morning that led to his attack, his conquest upon the temple in Jerusalem. First, he saw that the temple, he saw that in the temple, rather, was the commercialization of the gospel. The commercialization of the gospel. Secondly, he saw the crookedness of worship. Thirdly, he saw the corruption of mission. The commercialization of the gospel, the crookedness of worship, the corruption of mission. So let's look at this first point the commercialization of the gospel. Remember, beloved, that the week Jesus entered into Jerusalem was the week of the Passover. And so Jews from every part of the known world, every part of the Roman Empire, were coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover and to offer sacrifices. Now, if you were a Jew and you were making the long, oftentimes long, and very dangerous trek to Jerusalem, you had two options concerning those sacrifices. You could either try to bring your animal with you from your home, which was a risk, 
given the dangers that lay upon the roads going into Jerusalem, or you could buy your animal in Jerusalem for the sacrifices. And many people, of course, opted to buy their animals for the sacrifices once they got to the holy city. It was just easier that way. But in the temple, vendors set up stations in the outer courtyard of the temple, what is known as the court of the Gentiles. And they were taking advantage of this very situation. They would sell the animals and they would sell them at highly inflated rates. So if you were poor, for example, and you were coming and you needed to make the sacrifice of a poor person as the law of Moses allowed, you could normally buy that animal for that sacrifice, which was a pigeon. A pigeon was the animal that the poor people could offer up as a sacrifice. You could normally buy a pigeon for, in modern terms, let's just say you could buy it for a dollar. Very inexpensive. But in, that, in the temple, that animal, that same animal, would cost you $10. So maybe we hear that and we think, well, how hard is it to travel with a pigeon? Right? So if you're poor, why wouldn't you just bring a pigeon from home, stick it in a box? You know, it's not really an extra burden to carry that on your journey to Jerusalem. But you have to understand how this, this, this operation is set up. It wasn't just that the vendors in the temple were inflating the prices of the animals. They also had a deal worked out with the high priest. Now, it's a little confusing who the high priest was in that day. Technically, the high priest was Caiaphas. But Caiaphas was not accepted by the Jews as being the real high priest. Caiaphas was installed by the Roman Empire. Rome had no right to install a high priest over Israel. And so many of the Jews still regarded Annas who was removed by the Roman Empire, they still regarded Annas to be the real high priest. And so it was Annas, and we know this from historical records, Annas had quite a deal going on with these vendors. He was lining his pockets with the inflated cost of these sacrificial animals. Think about that. The high priest, the one who was in a sense the very leader of the religious life of Israel, was getting rich. Off the, off the sale of animals for the sacrifices. The Jewish historian Josephus, he referred to Annas because of this scheme. He referred to him as the great procurer of money. And understand, Annas, he had the right to examine any animal brought into the temple for the sacrifices and approve or reject that animal. So you can guess what he did. If a poor person did bring a pigeon with them from their home and brought it to the temple, Annas would simply examine the pigeon and say, no, it's too blemished. You have to go out to the temple courtyard and buy a new one. <clears throat> it was quite the, the great scheme that they had going on here. And then on top of that, we know that there were money changers in the temple. Now, every Jewish male was to pay annually a temple tax of half a shekel. And the shekel was the only currency accepted in the temple for this tax. But shekels were not the usual currency used throughout the Roman Empire. 
So once you got to Jerusalem, you had to exchange your, your money, your currency for the shekel. And I think we know exactly what the money changers would do. They'd do the same thing uh, that airports do if you're in a foreign country and you need to exchange American dollars for the local currency. They inflated the exchange rate and they were ripping people off. And Annas was getting rich off that inflated exchange rate as well as from the sale of sacrificial animals. And so here was Jesus in the temple. It's jam-packed with Jews from every corner of the Roman Empire, loud, noisy animals, vendors, money changers, and this is what leads to his violent actions of overturning tables, driving out the vendors. And it's interesting, when Luke says he began to drive out those who sold, the Greek verb for drive out, it is the same Greek verb Luke uses when he tells us how Jesus would cast demons out. It's just an interesting use of the verb there. And it maybe tells us how wicked and vile all of this was. And so we might ask, okay, so we see this sort of cheating, this robbing that is happening in the temple. It is vile. It is terrible. But how is it a commercialization of the gospel? Beloved, don't forget what the sacrifices in the temple represented especially during Passover, a festival intended to remind the Israelites of God's great work of salvation and deliverance in the Exodus. A work of salvation where He spared the oldest sons of Israel. How? Through the substitutionary death of a spotless lamb. I think our children's catechism, I know I quoted it from the, for the baptism this morning, but I'm going to quote it again here. Our children's catechism is helpful for us to understand how what was happening here was a commercialization of the gospel. Question 66 of the children's catechism asks, Before Christ came, how did believers show their faith? The answer is, by offering the sacrifices God required. The catechism then goes on to ask, what did these sacrifices represent? And it rightly says, the sacrifices represented... Christ, the Lamb of God, who would come to die for sinners. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters and friends, that Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, will come into this world and come into the holy city and be offered up upon the altar of the cross as a once and for all time final sacrifice. That he would come to die for sinners, shed his blood for the cleansing and the forgiveness of sins so that all who come to him in repentance and faith may be and will be saved. And so by selling those animals for sacrifices, by inflating the cost, these vendors were turning the gospel into a commodity. Those sacrifices were intended to give God's people the gospel hope that the Messiah, the Lamb of God, would one day come and die and take away their sin. The sacrifices visibly displayed the glorious hope, the good news of Jesus Christ. That they were, and, and, and there they were, selling it like a used car. The gospel was for sale in the temple court. And many people, including the high priest of Israel himself, were getting rich off of it. Is it any wonder that Jesus would stand there 
and quote the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 and declare that the house of God was now made into a den of robbers. I have to wonder, beloved, if the modern church is any different from that marketplace in the temple. Has the gospel today been turned into a marketable commodity? Has it been commercialized? When you walk into a church and you see the coffee shops and the bookstores, when you see overpriced t-shirts with Bible verses or graven images of Jesus on them, you look at the bumper stickers being sold, all the junk that people slap Bible verses on and sell, when you see celebrity pastors in their designer clothes and fancy cars and big mansions, when tickets to quote-unquote worship concerts sell for $80, $100, or more, it's a hard argument to say, no, of course the gospel isn't commercialized. Selling the gospel is big business today, beloved. And Christians seem overly willing to hand over their cash for anything labeled as Christian. Beloved, the gospel is not for sale. The gospel and gospel ministry is not a path to line your pockets with gold. And you need to be very wary of anyone who is getting rich off of the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about what we did last week. Voting to pay your pastor a livable wage. The Bible talks in many places about paying those who labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5 says that those elders who labor in teaching and preaching should be compensated. Paul says, For the scriptures say, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. But we're not talking about pastors being paid livable wages here. We're talking about exorbitant wealth being made off the sale of the gospel message. That is a perversion. It is damnable. And Jesus himself, in our text today, turns violent against those who use the gospel as a get-rich-quick scheme. Jesus attacked the temple because of the commercialization of the gospel. Our second point then, excuse me, he attacked the temple because of the crookedness of worship. When Jesus enters into the temple, we need to understand first off that that word temple is not referring to the building itself. It's referring to the entire property, the entire temple grounds, which includes the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the innermost courtyards, and of course the building. And all of this, as I said before, all of this that we are reading about today, it takes place in that outer courtyard. But we need to know this. Even the outer courtyard of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, was intended to be a place of worship. It's not like our yards out here, right? We, we rarely go out there and pray and use our property as, as a place of worship. <clears throat> the temple's different. The outer courtyard was intended to be a place of worship. It was a place of prayer, a place where worshipers could come and commune with God. True, 
It was, a, it was not a place where animal sacrifices were made, but it was still a place of worship nonetheless. And yet, it was turned into a loud, crowded, smelly marketplace, a place of business. My family and I recently watched uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I haven't seen it for a long time. Um, it's a great movie, but most of you have probably seen it by now. But there's a scene in there where Marcus Brody, who's this older English gentleman, is walking through a crowded, loud marketplace in modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> and in that scene, there are street vendors everywhere coming and shoving their products into his face, fruit, jewelry, even live chickens. And I believe that that scene is probably not too far off from what the temple courtyard was like on that day. Loud, smelly, livestock being shoved in your face as you try to push your way through the crowds. When you think about it, by the way, you think about that scene, it's really quite remarkable that Jesus, as one man, was able to clear the place out, drive all the vendors away. There had to be some kind of supernatural strength at work in him, that he could cast out the vendors and make sure that none of them could even re-enter the city to carry out their merchandise. But I, <clears throat> I was thinking about that, and you think, what, what was Jesus doing? How did he do this? But, you know, if you remember, this is the man who could command storms. He could command illnesses. He could even command demons. And so if Jesus could do that, surely he could handle some mere mortal men selling goods in the temple. Well, hopefully you see the picture in your mind, at least. This courtyard was the furthest thing from a house of prayer, a house of worship. I said to my kids yesterday, it'd be like trying to worship in a supermarket the day before a snowstorm. It's impossible. But that's what happened. And so Jesus declares, as he's driving out these merchants, he declares, Isaiah 56, verse 7, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7 says that the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, shall be called a house of prayer. And now here is God himself in the flesh, dwelling amongst his people, crying out, my house shall be a house of prayer. These merchants and these money changers took what the Lord intended to be a holy place, a place of pure worship, and turned it into a Middle Eastern bazaar. And now the Lord himself is driving them out, declaring that he would not tolerate this perversion, this crookedness of worship in his house. He was conquering the temple, liberating it from its twisted occupiers, setting it free, cleansing it, so that it could be once again a house of pure worship to God. And that naturally flows then, beloved, into the third point of our sermon this morning. The third reason Jesus attacked the temple was because of a corruption of mission. <clears throat> Now, I have noted several times now that all of this was happening in what is called the court of the Gentiles. Understand this. This is the only place in the temple grounds where Gentiles, that is, people who were not Jewish, <clears throat> were allowed to come and worship God. Now, you have to know your history a little bit and your theology 
of the temple, beloved, to truly get this. Before Jesus Christ's finished work of redemption upon the cross and in his resurrection, and before the gospel was sent out to all nations on the day of Pentecost, Gentiles were still considered to be outside the covenant. Now they could convert to Judaism and come into the covenant, but that conversion was a long and difficult process. If you were a man, it required that you be circumcised regardless of your age. Uh, It would require that you would adhere to all of Israel's ceremonial laws, all of Israel's civil laws. It would require that you become a citizen of the nation. But apart from that tedious process of becoming Jewish, Gentiles were not allowed, by the law of God, they were not allowed to participate in the religious life of Israel. But God still made provisions for them to come and worship by creating a courtyard where they could gather and pray. And Jesus, as he's cleansing the temple, he quotes Isaiah 56, my house shall be a house of prayer. But understand, Isaiah 56 does not end there. The prophet Isaiah goes on to say, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Some translations say for all nations. Do you see what that means? It means that it was always God's plan to bring the Gentiles, bring all nations into God's covenant people. It was actually part of the mission of the temple, if you will. Yes, it was a house of worship. Yes, it was God's dwelling place on earth. But it was also to be a place which called all people, all nations of the earth, not just the Jews, to come and worship the one true and living God. And while at this point in redemptive history, the Gentiles were relegated to the outer court, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through his death and resurrection, would tear down that wall which kept the Gentiles in the outer court, kept them separated from the inner courts. Jesus himself would go on to tear down that dividing wall so that all who come to him in faith, whether they are Jew or Gentile, would have full access to God. Not in an earthly temple, but rather They would have full access to God through faith and repentance. And the heavenly sanctuary would be opened up to everyone. This is why Paul says, Paul talks about this a lot in Ephesians chapter 2, by the way. This is the imagery he's drawing off of in Ephesians 2. And this is why Paul says to the church in Ephesus, a church of Gentiles, he says, you who were once far off, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles were relegated to this outer courtyard for now, but that courtyard, it had a mission. It had a gospel purpose. The Gentiles who came there to worship were to understand, beloved, that although they were still far off, in a physical sense, God made a provision for them to come and worship, and offer up prayer, and have fellowship and communion with him. And they were to understand that the day would come when God himself, in the person and work of the Messiah, would tear down that wall that kept them from entering into the inner courts of the temple. 
And God himself would bring them near by his blood. So when the Jews turned that court of the Gentiles into nothing more than a marketplace, they corrupted the mission of God. They were, in a sense, keeping the Gentiles shut out from the covenant community. And so Jesus, violently, with zeal for God's glory, zeal for the purity of worship, zeal for the lost Gentiles, purified, cleansed, conquered the temple. And our passage ends today with showing us what he did once the temple was conquered. He would teach and he would preach daily. And if you would read on to Luke chapter 20, verse 1, Luke tells us exactly what he preached. He preached the gospel. And although the religious leaders are seeking to destroy him, at this point at least, the crowds are captivated by the Messiah who has conquered the temple and who is now proclaiming to them the gospel truth. Beloved, there's a challenge here in our text this morning for our church. Not just for our church, but for every church of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 4, that the time would come when we would no longer go to the temple mound to worship God. That God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Which means the whole of our lives is to be a life of worship. We no longer need to go to Jerusalem to worship. It's not about the building anymore. But it is also true that the scriptures still place an emphasis on the gathering of God's people to worship him. They still place an emphasis on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day, as a day of gathered worship. And that means, logically and naturally, that the place where we gather together to worship, this sanctuary, this building, is, at least when we are gathered for worship, it is the house of God, a house of prayer. So what does this mean for us? Beloved, it means that we need to make sure that this house of God, this place of worship, is a house of prayer. A place where the gospel is not sold. A place where the gospel is heard clearly. Where anyone, rich or poor, can come and hear the good news of their salvation. Hear of the crucified and risen Lord who can and will save them from their sin. It means we need to make sure that this place of worship is a place of pure worship. A place which is truly a sanctuary from the loud, noisy, distracting world around us. A house of prayer, a house of communion and fellowship with God and with one another. We need to make sure that this is a place where the covenant people of God gather to worship properly. To worship in spirit and worship in, in, and worship in truth according to the word of God. And beloved, this, for us today, this passage we have heard, ab- heard about today, it means that we need to make sure that this house, this place of worship, holds fast to the mission that Jesus Christ himself gave us. The mission of making disciples of all nations by faithfully teaching, preaching, proclaiming the word of God, and by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. The day will come, beloved, when King Jesus will return. May he, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, not find this house or any other church which claims the name of Christ. May he not find this house of worship a place that he must attack and conquer. May he not find this place to be a den of robbers. Instead, may he find this place a pure house of prayer.